Welcome to the Ace Podcast with me, Pete Pavides. Today, my guest is one of Britain's foremost music archivists and enthusiasts. He didn't seem to go through the adolescent angst of trying to work out what to do with the rest of your life, like some of us may have done, because by his mid-teens, he was a mod who was already amassing an excellent uh, collection uh, by um, haranguing, partly by haranguing DJs to find out what they'd just played. Um, by the early 90s, he was right-hand man to Eddie Piller at Acid Jazz, helping to put together their hugely important Totally Wired compilations, and that led to more work reactivating the archive at Blue Note with a succession of equally influential collections. He also relaunched EMI's stateside label in the mid-2000s before jumping over to Ace, a label where a lifelong music fan can really get their hands dirty. And that's just what he's been doing ever since he arrived here with a string of incredible compilations on his own BGP imprint, among them Superfunk, Superbreaks, Funk Soul Sisters, Superfunk's Mission Impossible and Ain't It Funky Now. Uh, there are also other splendid titles. He was also behind Take Me to the River, A Southern Soul Story, 1971 uh, lovely to meet you. We've never properly met, really, have we? No, we bumped into each other in the kitchen the other week when Alexis was here. <laughs> Indeed, that's right, yeah. Um, you've kind of, I, I guess, maybe possibly more than any of the people I've met for this podcast. I think you're the one whose kind of adult life I probably envied the most. <laughs> and it, I think it goes back, really, to what I said at the top of the intro, which is that sort of thing of kind of knowing... Uh, before you were even in uh, adulthood was f before you were even an adult where you were sort of seen to be headed or is that not true i don't think that's true i think i think it's probably true for all of us who grew up through the kind of late 70s into buying records in the 80s mm. that we music was played that vital central role i mean i was talking to someone the other day i heard a record on the radio and it reminded me of Peter Powell's 5.45s at 5.45 that he used to do every day on Radio 1. And that's kind of, things like that, I mean, I think we were incredibly lucky. We were 10 years beyond pop music's great re revolution. Mm -hmm. And we had all that, and we had all the pop records coming through at the same time, be it, you know, the jam, the specials, or if, it, if you were, you know, into different things, things like The Cure or... Um, I can say you too or the police. I think there was there was a centrality to pop music at that mm. time that made you know we're all sitting here. We've all we all spent our lives involved in music in some way, and I think it was to do with the specific cultural artifacts of that era. Do you think it, that? And do you think that's got something to do with the relative lack of choice that there was? You talked about the centrality of pop music. You talked about Radio One. There was only one station in the main that most people could go to, sort of a national station. Yeah. So, you know, that sort of gave you, in a way, a wider knowledge than you would have ideally liked because you were kind of listening to all, you know, so many, many genres had to kind of compete for a place on Radio 1. I, I think so. And I think the other thing was in London we had Capital Radio, which at the time... Um, uh, Peter Young used to do the drive time show hmm. and every every night at like five to seven or five to six or whenever he finished he'd play some mad mod soul records you know <laughs> Jimmy McGriff's All About My Girl or yeah. or James Brown's I've got, an ants, in my, I've got ants in my pants as yeah. well as having an hour long show at, uh, to do his soul seller at the weekend and to think you know that the equivalent today would I would I guess be uh, you know, Capital Radio playing obscure hip hop records yeah. from twenty five years ago, and it's interesting, isn't it? You know, those when a DJ on daytime radio would play one of those, it would just stick in your memory if you were a certain age and of a certain sensibility. I remember Mike Reed on his Radio One Breakfast Show playing One Two Three by Lem Barry, 
Yeah. And just being just smitten, you know. I mean, I just remembered the, the name and title immediately. I, I, I think the other thing was there wasn't, there wasn't too much pop history hmm. at the time. People, as you say, narrowed the choice. Pop history was, you know, I don't know if you remember that magazine, History of Rock, that came out. Yeah, yeah. And there was, there was very much a kind of very narrow definition of the history of rock. Yeah, yeah. Um, song music kind of lost its way after 68. Um, rock yeah. music was a bit boring in the early 70s and then punk, punk came back. And while a lot of us have spent our adult lives trying to disprove a lot of those facts hmm. i think it really helped that we had that framework at which to you know go and explore david axelrod records or weird folk records totally or, yeah well uh, let me just place you geographically where where were you at this point i grew up in epsom hmm. you know, i was born in glasgow moved when i was five grew up in epsom um which had a great record shop called mgm and then about 82 a shopping centre open with an R price in it which I think Bob Stanley worked in for a while he worked in an R price that's for sure I'm pretty sure it was the Epsom one one. I'm sure it was in Michael Hand's article about uh, St Etienne last year and I went oh there's a there's a thing Bob Stanley probably sold me my Ray Barretto acid record (laughs) and but those you know people kind of think of the later days of HMV and and R. Price and Virgin, where they were kind of chart-churning machines. But I know so many people, maybe five, ten years older than me, who worked in those shops, and they were allowed to buy whatever stock they liked as long as they could sell it, and they were exciting places to go into. They totally were, and I I thought that this is one thing we forget. I remember... At the beginning of the year, when it looked like HMB was going to go into administration, there was a, a, a quite an ignorant article, think piece written by someone in the Guardian, which sort of talked about which the kind of the gist of it was: well, they had it coming to them. You know, these are not specialist shops, and actually, any of us who love music, love collecting records, these were the record. These were the shops. Your local, if not, so you go into HMB in town on a Saturday, and then. In between, you go down the road to your local chart-based sort of maybe even chart return uh, record shop and you'd sort of spider out from there. But the specialist places came later for a lot of us. Well, and, and they should... I, I don't know anyone who who's really into music. People love... I, I remember, and I'm not going to say their name, but a well-known journalist. <laughs> we were sitting around... This was in about the mid-90s, Friday night in Soho, having a few drinks at the Blue Post. And conversations turned into, what was your most influential record when you were 15? And we all said, I think I said Revolver, a couple of Setting Suns, maybe Mm. in All Around the World. And this guy, I think, because he was hanging around with a bunch of people who were supposedly serious music heads went John Coltrane a love supreme <laughs> and we just went sorry no you no no and we kind of laughed and it's there is a kind of feeling that people maybe Will have, Downing a love supreme but not just <laughs> yeah but sorry. it was just like yeah and we were just I mean we called him out immediately and he backed down immediately but there is a, a desire that, I mean and it's part of the fun of being in your 20s being a musical snob can sometimes be a lot of fun mm. um and saying i don't like this for no approachable reason i mean yeah. i i i've we would i was talking with a friend of mine and we were laughing about remember the days when you could you could hate pink floyd mm-hmm. you you had no all the older kids at school like pink floyd and you just thought sad yeah whatever's yeah. and the the clarity of youth disappears as you realise. It's so quite true. Like. I, I've, I've said this before, but I sort of I'm I'm starting to wonder if the actual journey that you go through as a lifelong lover of music is to to gradually end up liking everything because you know when the, the when the tribalism and the snobbery of youth sort of goes and you connect all the bits up together and you actually understand why everything exists and who it's for, then you can end up sort of feeling quite defensive of anything, you know. And that I feel like sometimes that's where I'm kind of heading. I can't be that iconoclastic sort of faux firebrand of my younger days. <laughs> and it's, sometimes it's really disappointing, isn't it? <laughs> I, I know. But you were sort of like, um, so yeah, so you mentioned, uh, so you might have said, 
uh, in that conversation, you might have said like so setting sons and revolver kind of spring to us. That paints a picture. Uh, that paints an immediate picture of you, really, in a way, as a younger as a younger kid. It is. I mean, the way I got into, apart from pop music being everywhere, the way I got really into music was. There was a TV programme when I was 10 that was the million-selling hits of the UK, Britain's biggest singles. And there was like five Beatles records in there. And I went to my mum and dad said, why haven't we got any Beatles records? And she said, well, we have. We've got Please Please Me and with the Beatles. And I go, none of the hits are on there. Yeah. Said, well, they but they were massive. They were the records we bought. They, yeah, yeah. You know, they'd probably grown up by 64 because that's how quickly it moved when you were a teenager in the 60s. And... Then my dad came in about a week later with eight of the original albums. There was a bloke at his work who just by coincidence was selling all his 60s collection of albums. And there was a massive list. And I'd, if I saw it now, I'd probably go mad. I mean, I do remember that all the Kinks albums were on there. Oh, mad Stones albums and stuff like that. And I, you know, it, it, quit a time as well. Oh. <laughs> exactly. It's, uh, it's, but I got uh, Hard Day's Night Help... Uh, Rubber Soul, uh, Revolver, Sgt. Pepper's, White Album, um, and Abbey Road. All from all from that, and a collection and how, of Beatles oldies. And how old were you? I was 10. And which ones jumped out at you? Which were the front, you know, if we, th- if we imagine a kind of Dolphin Derby of Beatles albums, which were the ones kind of streaking ahead? I, I think Revolver, Rubber Soul, and Help immediately. Right, I, yeah. I mean, to me, there is an alluring and never-ending attraction to that back cover picture of Revolver. Mm-hmm. It's everything I I want in 60s pop music. It's everything I wanted in pop music. When I saw the jam do... I never, I didn't really get into the jam until their last year when I was 13. So Town Called Malice, I carried it around with me when I right, bought yeah. it. But I do remember seeing the start video. And while everyone goes on about the the tax man influence mm. it was less that it was more that video just seemed to be well, older people were going on about the tax man influence because of course people of roughly our age didn't care or might not know i didn't yeah. know what tax man was you know i'm pretty sure because i'd Cause cause eight, you, well it was only the following year so you might yeah. have known yeah, yeah you but, might you, but i, I you know i i thought it was just a kind of in a way sometimes you're smarter at that age than you are 10 years later so in a way i could see through that i could see that that was kind of point scoring um to point out things like that yeah um because you know sometimes you see that kind of adult snobbery for for what it is interesting you said setting suns because i i had just adore that record but sometimes it sort of gets a little bit it's a bit underappraised it it seems to have disappeared from the kind of what people like um, thing. I mean, I think everything slowly, as time passes, things slowly get taken down yeah. to it. I think even the Beatles is now, Beatles singles are kind of disappearing from what people know and you're kind of fixating around Sgt. Pepper's and Abbey Road as the two iconic albums. Mm. And that's time for you. And I think with the jam, All Mod Cons seems to be the thing that people now go isn't that the iconic album yeah it changes all the time but yeah i i sort of think that if i remember what it was like sort of gro- i grew up in birmingham in just a fairly sort of nondescript suburb and if i remember that you know like with songs like saturday's kids and girl on the phone that sort of and and uh, wasteland the sort of language and the descriptive sort of flavor uh, of that record accords with that I, and I think it's interesting if you go to a Weller gig I think you see that songs from Setting Suns are still his core audiences yeah. really feel strongly for those uh, you know Saturday kids, Saturday's Kids especially it's you know it's very evocative of, of, what, yeah. of growing up in Britain at the time and that's sometimes a problem for him as well I think you know trying to sort of impose what, <laughs> what he you know I, 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 I think a lot of the the problem is, and I've got to be careful here, on, is that inevitably, despite what people say about, you know, and this is, I think this applies to most mature artists, however good their new album is, it's, it will never have the feeling of hearing their greatest work aimed, particularly in pop music, aimed at you when you are 
15, 16. It's a lot to fight against. And, you know, you just have to sort of put it out there in the hopeful knowledge that, um, you know, further down the line. I mean, you know, I sort of, I, I you know, my kids are that age where I sort of, I've got two daughters and I drive them around a lot. And so often they're putting their playlists on. And, you know, it was interesting to sort of hear my, my 16-year-old on her most, one of her most recent plays, she's got The Cranes Are Back by, by Paul Weller. Right. Which was like about two or three albums ago. Yeah. She, so she loves, she, she's got, she doesn't, she's not prejudiced by, you know, sort of nostalgia or all that. She just picks out the ones that she likes. Right. And that's just up there with them, you know. So I think it, it levels out, doesn't it, over time? I, th- I think so. But I, I do think that, I think it's always my argument about people who go on about solo Beatles stuff. Hmm. How do you expect them to carry on writing at that level that they wrote, particularly when there's only one of them now? Yeah, so they're not sort of that kind of gladiatorial aspect of being sort of in the, you know, sort of trying to outdo each other. Yeah. But, you know, once in a while, something Um, incredible. I remember when he brought that single out, the one that was ripping off Block Party and everyone. Oh, but as Block Party were ripping off Wire and the stuff he'd ripped off for um, Floorboards Up. And I oh, just, well, well, Paul, and I, yeah, 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 and yeah. I just thought that's just in, yeah. that that's just an incredible record, and for him to come back with that in two thousand and five or whatever, I mm. thought, mm. you know, that's that, and f- yeah, that album also had "Come On, Let's Go" on it. And yeah, those two were like. See, real... I always had a slight problem with the swearing in that. It just felt like old man swearing. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good swearer, Paul, but, you know, yeah, I'll take your point. Yeah, so to, to go back to your original question is whether whether I was kind of marked for life on this. It's, in fact, not really. It just felt totally normal going to more clubs when I was 15. Mm-hmm. Something which I think, looking at kids today, you, you can't go out clubbing when you're 15. Well, for a start, you'd want ID. That's true. Um, my youngest is giving it a bloody good go. Well, good, good on her. <laughs> it's quite easy to get fake ID. Right, okay. Um, to, uh, to a relatively high standard as well. Oh, good. And oh. Uh, so, you know. Um, but uh, on, t- <laughs> on top of that, it was just... Uh, the, I ended up just drifting into university. Um, Where did you go? Uh, Queen Mary College and SOAS at the same time. It was that much of a drift. I oh, wow. I had to take a kind of split degree to get to, wow. to pass through my uh, slightly awful results. So SOAS is good. For people who don't know, SOAS is right sort of near Russell Square and it's a School of African Studies, right? School of Oriental and African Studies. Sorry, yes. Okay. And... Um, so you're kind of knocking around with some pr- a pretty diverse bunch of people. Well, not really, because I really was almost entirely absent for the three years. I kind of drifted in. I did enough work to... Did you pass? Yeah, just. What did you get? A third. Wow, that's a real good time degree. A third with honours. Is that a thing? <laughs> well, everyone else tells me it's not, but it's sitting on my certificate. No, I, I, no I'm, sh- I'm sure you My wife goes... No, you're joking. You, How can you have honours? I think you might have got your degree from the same place my daughter got a fa- fake ID. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying anything. Uh, gov. Anyway, um, it doesn't matter because but, weren't you sort of no, ba- but, badgering Eddie Pillar at this no, point? No, what I was doing, I was going to clubs and I had no idea. I had a vague idea I wanted to write or do something, something involving music. But I had no idea. I was DJing a bit and I basically... The last six months, I was running a club with a friend of mine, and Eddie was the guest DJ. And his offices were on the Hackney Road. Queen Mary's is on Mile End Road. For people not listening in London, that's about a half-mile walk. Um, so I was I was dropping flyers off there. And the day I got my rather unimpressive final result, I went in, and he said, well, what are you doing? I said, and he said, right, have a job. Um, wow. I can't pay you. Uh, <laughs> I can't pay you, but you know what we'll give you year? expenses. What was the year? This was 1990. So you really, th- th- your timing was impeccable uh, because you know I- it, it. It was, but at the time it seemed really bad because what basically happened was the day I joined, they released three records. They released brand new Heavy's Dream Come True on a, the independent version that did nothing. Mm. A band called De-Influence, I'm the one. Now Kwame, who was the main man from De-Influence, is a very big manager, manages 
someone I've forgotten now. Okay. And then Terry Callier's I Don't Want to See Myself, which Eddie had tracked down Terry and and found him in Chicago being a computer programmer. And three great records and then we went then we were going, Well, it's really difficult, maybe we will just become a management company. Mm. And it was only the fact that the heavies got signed in America and suddenly it went off. They had a top three R&B hit, album in the charts for a year. It suddenly became quite a massive thing. And then we tripped over Jamiroquai and the whole thing exploded. And we'd moved offices to the West End and being 21, working in the West End for what at the time was a very cool record label was yeah. like for someone who... I'd love to be cool. I'm not. Yeah. I certainly wasn't then. I was a very introverted record collectory type boy who yeah. um, had been had been on the mod scene. It it was obviously a kind of a dream come true. Oh yeah. And to quote your yeah to, your heroes to, yeah, and that whole kind of two there was a two to three year period where kind of nothing really could go wrong. Yeah. And it's a what a trio of records, really. And you know, it's lovely to see. I mean, I think to people in the know, like the brand new heavies have always been, you know, per, there's never been an issue with how cool they or whatever. But like, so that's great. And it's good to see them working with Mark Ronson, I think, at the moment. They've, done uh, they've just done a single with Mark. He's uh, the Mark story that, as Mark tells it, was he went into SOBs in New York in 19. 19- 91 as a 16 year old heavy metal fan and came out with his love of funk and soul which he's mined ever since because of the brand new heavies because of the brand new heavies he he uh, the guitarist of the band tells this story they played mark's 40th birthday party and they were in the room afterwards no rogers was there and Mark went, apart from this guy, you're my favourite guitarist ever. <laughs> and, and Simon goes, I don't even think it was my guitar part that he loves. <laughs> oh, how sweet. But that and also, God, you know, the influence that first influence album, I know it didn't come out on Acid Jazz, but, um, but nevertheless, to have kind of spotted the influence and to sort of... And, um, you know, there is, a, there is a band who are awaiting... Yeah, I mean, they, they've they reformed and they do the odd gig still. Um, but, you know, as I said, Kwame is very busy um, managing whoever he manages and it's never going to be more than a kind of part-time thing, but absolutely phenomenal band. And one of their members was a very high aristocracy. So when I've started work in July, within a month, we've gone to this party somewhere mm. in the Sussex countryside in this massive house, which we realise isn't a massive house, it's the caretaker's cottage of this massive <laughs> estate. And we're just going, and I'm going, this is unreal. This is... Yeah, I mean, given like how, how what a short period of time you'd even been in, in the industry, as it were. It, and, you know, it's... Uh, I mean, I think that, you know, I think there is a lot of... Um, I think Acid Jazz's role in that the story of sort of music in the British music in the nineties, you know, is worth sort of dwelling on because people sort of talk about, you know, I think the passing kind of, you know, if you're in a hurry and you worked for a newspaper and you're writing a three hundred word piece on the nineties, you probably go straight to Britpop. But I think the kind of the the sense of the the, the vibrant atmosphere in London in the early nineties, without which Britpop might not have happened in the form that it did is, you know, in part, in great part, sort of down to acid jazz and stuff that was happening around that. I, I, I think it's a really, really good point. I think there was a lot of things going on and it wasn't just the acid jazz type clubs. It was also the scene at Smashing and there was a, another group of people which was called PPQ who were a bunch of guys from the Isle of Wight who had also been ex-mods and they they had a scene going on as well and those things were all people dressed in adidas levi's gazelles um kind of retro cardigans all the things that you know you look at all the Britpop bands yeah totally they were all doing that and they were all you know as a label you know acid jazz was a soul boy label but it was also always a mod label so it was mixing those things together so you know, I remember, you know, call, you know, those early kind of post 
baggy blur singles all had those b-sides which were attempting to be corduroy mm-hmm. and you know they i remember seeing blur putting them on the bill on park life when they did alexander palace yeah and it, there were there was that crossover but there suddenly was. we were very much yesterday's trend with when when that happened well, i think that's because like the music papers and i used to write for one of the melody maker used to sort of they did there was no great effort to understand the aesthetic around acid jazz and i remember it well the part of the reason i remember it was and talking loud suffered from this as well um which was i guess an affiliated label. we can say that it was an affiliated label not in front of giles you probably can't but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it, it is i yeah. mean but um and the interesting, the interesting thing about all that was, I certainly remember. I mean, part, of, I, part of the reason I remember it is I just started at Melody Maker, and I, so I was looking for work to just to, do, and it was very easy for me to get work reviewing uh, gigs by artists who are on acid jazz and talking loud because not many other people wanted to do them. So it was, so I got it was great for me because I was very happy to go to those gigs. Paul Weller's an interesting one as well because I think he sits at the exact point of intersection between the sort of Britpop thing and the acid jazz thing. You're you're absolutely you're a hundred percent on the money there. I mean, I first I'm trying to remember when I first ran into Weller, but I do remember once walking into our studio. We had a studio downstairs in Denmark Street, and my eyesight was starting to go and who's that bloody mod at the bottom of the stairs? And oh bloody hell, it's Paul Weller. Um <laughs> But yeah, actually, I do. I now do remember the story. It was because DC Lee's best friend ran our studio, and she was she was often around. and And actually, the, one of the first times I met her, the, I couldn't think of anything to say. But I just like, what was it like to be on stage at Live Aid? Because I just thought that is a pretty nuts thing. Fair enough. You know, I'm just, you know, but we we were all hanging around in the office one night, and Paul was meant to turn up, and he turned up. And he'd just mixed, he'd just been mixing his first solo album. And he said, Oh, sorry, I'm late. Um, do you want to hear what I've been doing? And I'm just sitting in the corner of the room going, uh, Yeah, please. <laughs> and he played Bull Rush off the first album. Wow. And, but that whole, you know, he was, he was on the acid jazz Dingwall scene. Hmm. He was someone we would often see around. And, you know, he's, he was on he was on a bunch of records on the label uh, as a kind of guest musician and yeah and then he was very much part of the Britpop thing as soon as soon as that happened and it was because I think it was for the same reason that he was central to our scene we were looking up to him hmm. and so were all those guys coming through on yeah it's, it's this interesting grey area because it's kind of you know sort of Brendan Lynch and uh, and then you know, there's like a, I think the ex the kind of the mod thing is also kind of sits in both camps. Yeah. So you know, further on you got you know Brendan producing Ocean Color Scene as well. So it is these worlds coming together, and then you got sort of things like uh, what was the, blow up at the Laurel Tree. Yep. Which was again a kind of emerging kind of ground for kind um, of both those. Yeah, things, and just. It? one of the most exciting clubs I've ever been to both there and when it moved to the WAG mm. I mean I, I feel very lucky to have DJ'd uh, Blow Up when it was at the WAG because it was just such a such an exciting place for a few years and I guess you know moving into you know I guess you would have without really knowing it I would imagine you would have done a lot of unwitting sort of legwork for, for, for that would have borne fruit with the, the with the work that you've subsequently done with ace which is you know when you're djing regularly you know that kind of hunger to find the next kind of brilliant thing that you can sort of play at these places is all consuming well i think it was it was pretty central to the whole kind of acid jazz scene anyway the whole giles peterson dingle scene was giles often seems to these days pretend he's all about new records and f- discovering newness he was about discovering the best records when he was at w- at that point and it was most of those were old but he'd be throwing in new stuff as well and he loves to remember oh i played 808 state at dingles but you know those sorts of records were probably 20 percent of what he was playing right and we were all just mad record diggers for mm. want of a better word and we were throughout the whole period and my break on doing that i mean 
all our totally wide compilations we would have one or two oldies on there and mm. it was strictly one or two so it'd be kind of me and ed fighting to see which one of our favorite tracks would get on there as um basically based on what we could license most easily probably mm. um but then we there was a guy who used to come around record company offices called Mark Andrups who managed um he worked he worked for my uh IRS a mm. record la- record label but he also managed remixers like Roger Sanchez and Moss at Work and yeah. he would come around people's offices and he would blag massive amounts of records and he kind of the payoff would be that you would get um he'd had good connections in America and he'd give you latest hip hop promos or something and right. you'd be it'd be great but the the rumour in the industry was that he paid the deposit on his on his muse house in Labrick Grove off of record company promo rooms <laughs> I, I don't know but he, he was he was a great guy and sadly died at the age of 30 in 95 but he introduced me to he said you've got to meet this friend of mine at um, EMI he does the jazz stuff right. and he took me over to EMI in Manchester Square which you know, as a Beatles fan, that it's was pretty. Thrilling. That yeah, was pretty thrilling. Yeah, totally. I went in, met this guy called Tony Harlow, who um, went on to run EMI in Australia, V2, and now high up at Warner's. And he was doing jazz marketing for Europe. And he said, oh, "I'm doing these Blue Series compilations, and I've got this thing, Blue Breakbeats, but I'm not sure there's quite enough there." I said, "Well, just add some stuff that sounds like it should be there, and people will sample it." And we, yeah. and we kind of, and we put that out and it was a massive success and I started doing those compilations for the next 15, 20 years. So there's a real, you really deliberately mixed up the chicken with the egg there and sort of, yeah. You know, so by putting things that sounded like that ought to be sampled, then a lot of them ended up being sampled. Uh, yeah, I, I think so, though you sometimes wonder, I mean there was one thing we put on which was The Worm by Jimmy McGriff, which has this kind of drumbeat intro, which um, Chemical Brothers used over about three albums and you know you can, I can just hear it coming and going in various Chemical Brothers yeah. but they were also playing at a club in Manchester at the time which was quite likely it would have been played at hmm. anyway so you kind so of think is know. there a yeah, chicken or an egg there yeah, yeah. Yeah, whatever you just don't know but that's a hell of a sort of because uh, you'd still be quite young so to be sort of be, to be let loose on the, on, on the Blue Note catalogue that's pretty that's you must be pretty pleased with the way things are going yeah it was brilliant and I, about a year in once it had happened i did a straight jazz comp which did quite well called blue and groovy and a friend of mine went i bought your blue and groovy thing it's just that cassette that you did me at home about three years ago i went yeah i guess so and it so it was kind of like <laughs> well clearly taking, they got the right man for the job well it was yeah but it was like taking your home cassetting and making it there yeah. was nothing the stuff I do at Ace is much deeper and yeah. kind of more considered. Mm. Then it was, how can I translate these things that people would normally see as kind of listening at home things yeah. and make it clear that they're for club DJs <laughs> to play? And that's, you know, in a certain way, that's that was kind of my raison d'etre for the first 10 years of me doing compilations. It was like... Yeah, absolutely. And they're still well remembered. I mean, a lot of them go for quite a lot of money now, don't they? Um. I never look. <laughs> I think because I go, the, oh, you know, oh, loads of copies of that, and I haven't now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of the Blue Note ones, I think, sort of do very well. So um, let's let's just move a little bit on to. There is so much ground to cover with your work at Ace. Yeah, and I mean, this is an environment where you can, like you say, you can get really, really deep and really research the hell out of something. And how do? You, but what I'm interested in is how so. You know, with when you sort of put together a, a, a sort of collection, but like a on sort of like a, 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 a label-based collection, like the West Band ones you've done. Yeah. Um, how do you how what how do you get access to archive that's so many thousands of miles away? I and mean, just purely logistically, I wouldn't know where to start. It it all depends. I mean, at Ace, the great thing and is that we. Over, however, over forty-five years or whatever, those things have been done. You know, Roger and Ted, with their connections with Westbound, they copied all the tapes. And in reality, 
the bulk of the accessible tape archive is now here, not in Detroit. Yeah. I, I went out to Detroit about two years ago to try and find some things we don't have. Yeah. And it didn't quite come together because then there's a certain level of it's not so active as a label anymore. Right. Whereas Roger and Ted Kay went, copied, archived and uh, generally put everything together. Right, right, yeah. So for that, or when we were doing the Fame catalogue, we went out there, we copied the tapes, mm. and that deal in itself took nearly 15 years to come together from really? Roger's first visit down with Rick Hall in, in Muscle Shoals to via me and Alec going about 10 years after. What is that? Is that like just a process of gradual trust or a logistical thing or what? Um, I think... There's a certain level of trust. Yeah. There's also a level of um, what's what am I looking? At? Level of time moves on. I think you might you must remember in kind of the kind of nineties you'd hear an interview with Mick Jagger or whoever, and they I I don't have a past. It's like I have no memory of my past. I'm only moving forward. I still want to be relevant. Mm, yeah. I think there comes a point when people realise that they want their achievements to be yeah. properly archived. And I think even in 2007, Rick must... Rick was over nearly 80 when he died. So he yeah. was he must have been nearly 70 when we went and saw him. Yeah. And he was, uh, he was still like, yeah, well, maybe we can do a deal. But, you know, <laughs> I need you to find some way of us releasing this... Um, this uh, country stuff that I'm doing now and me and Alec are going well you know we're not really a country yeah, rival we yeah. wouldn't help it wouldn't help your records really and no, he's going well no. you know so it's kind of impressive that he was still kind of hustling for new stuff oh he know, was he was un unbelievable and you know I'm sure we got him at a much more mellow stage in mm. his life than some of the stories that he himself would tell from earlier in his life. But the the the, the resulting compilation, the Fame Studio Story, Studio Story, which I'm holding in my hand right now, is just such an incredible piece of work. And you know, I mean, we talk about you know, unless you kind of like actually have them in front of you, you know, it it's the difference between having something just streaming something on spotify or something and just having this beautiful kind of hardback book which has got three kind of pockets kind of for for different cds embedded in it it's just you know it's just a quantum difference and so you're getting that sort of ex experience you know the book itself is kind of well the, th the great thing with fame i mean that was kind of the second thing we did. We did uh, Take Me to the River first, the mm. Southern Soul story. And that was more a reflection of everyone involved's knowledge, pulling things together. Mm. The fame story, we got to go down to fame. We got to meet Rick. We got to go through the archive. We got to copy the tapes. It it was it was a glorious thing to do. How long were you there for? Um, we were probably there for a... Hmm, couple of weeks here a couple of weeks there and you go down you know i can't imagine how excited i'd be sitting on a plane knowing where i was going and knowing what i was going to do and um, the record shopping that i'd be planning in between it's yeah I, I, there's nothing you can say but that i mean the first time i went to the states for ace was in 2003 we all went to memphis i mean it's probably something that wouldn't well it would never happen again because the business has changed but about five or six of us who of the consultants and Roger we all went to Memphis for the opening of the Stax Museum and it was a very useful a very useful week just meeting lots of people which turned into deals further down the line I think that was when Roger went one of the times Roger went down to Muscle Shoals to try and bring Rick on uh, on side and just but it was just incredible i remember sitting on the plane going i think we flew into uh houston and then got or i flew into houston and got a plane back across to memphis i remember just flying looking over kind of all these fields and all these this prairie or whatever it is and i was just going i cannot believe this this is just unbelievably <laughs> good i am going to muscle show i'm going to memphis to hang around with a bunch of stacks people uh pinch me <laughs> absolutely and um i was listening to this on the way down and just you know it's kind of there's what you think you know about this whole scene the muscle muscle scene and then there's what you sort of 
find out by kind of immersing yourself in these compilations and just the kind of the sweetness of those especially those early releases you know i'm looking at sort of um you know like let them talk by dan penn or laugh it off by the tams or uh, almost persuaded by june conquest which is just i love that sort of um that period of 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 kind of pop r&b soul yeah, in the 60s kind of almost soul really isn't it's it? almost it's soul a, and it's very pop and it's uh you know and it's, i think i think the thing is at that point they're trying to find their feet and they're trying to uh discover what they're hmm. what they're actually doing so let them talk dan's trying to be the the impressions i think and he's trying to copy what's big in the ch- in the charts and it's yeah a bit of yeah and a bit of drifters yeah kind of vibe yeah um the the compilation that we, you've just been working on which i think is coming out around the same time as this is a westbound records one tell us a little bit about that it's it, it's it's a fairly straightforward compilation of west westbound's best records or most notable records built around the fact it's the 50th anniversary of that label this year and what's it called it's called um, Everything is Going to Be Alright. Um, I can't remember the rest of the title, actually. It's all right. That'll do. Um, <laughs> I'm, glad is, I, I'm glad I'm not the only one having senior moments. Yeah, which is named after a brilliant gospel record by Bill Moss called Everything's Going to Be Alright. And, um, you know, it just... Ace has done Westbound now for over 30 years. Um, it's an ongoing and enduring relationship with Armin, who is one of the Armin Baladian who started the label, who mm. is still there, still there. He's, you know, in his mid to late eighties. Now he's, when I visited in Detroit, he just had a cataract operation. So he had the dark glasses on, which made him look more record industry to be Good, fair. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he took me down to, uh, M- the studio M- M&M was discovered in, which is where they s- do a lot of their archival work. And, um, you know, he was still, I'd met Armin a couple of times. Time before that was when he invested in a Luke Goss kind of Vegasy Frank Sinatra oh, record. I've got to correct you there. I was it Matt was, Goss? I think that was Matt. I, I was discussing this with my wife last night and I couldn't remember which one it was. But he's, he's just, you know, he has spent all this time and he sometimes from uh, acolytes of George Clinton gets a hard time yeah but this is a man who funded George throughout much of his uh, well, is, that, is that also partly because um, Westbound themselves uh, Westbound itself is kind of an, an un, under-celebrated label it, it is and I think part of that's because we're going back to history of rock history of uh, history of music again is that there's a real, there's that standard story that everything in Detroit died as soon as Motown moved in the in kind of nineteen you know Berry moved to, yeah, um, to LA Angeles. in nineteen sixty nine and lost his interest and as soon as Motown closed in seventy two Detroit never made any great music and I've been listening to a lot of Westbound stuff and a lot of the Hollandosia stuff recently mm. and the records coming out of both labels at that time is just astounding yeah now. Hollandosia, I think, were pretty much funding themselves on the fact that they, their songwriting royalties were massive. Yeah, Armin was doing a different thing. He was the classic indie label, and he picked up a lot of slack from Motown leaving. And you know, that's bands like Detroit Emeralds would have probably found a natural home at Motown before that. They, they did they put out a record on a Motown imprint, Rick Tick. Yeah, I think before it was bought by Motown, but yeah, they were yeah. on they were on various on Rick Tick as did. Um, Another of Armand's bands from the period, Fantastic Four, they yeah. had records on Motown as well. And they they were, and he, you know, he, but he was also willing to take the massive risks of, you know, making five Funkadelic albums when no, mm. one, no one was interested. Which were, were financially were a liability for him, weren't they? He was, when George left, he was quarter of a million dollars uh, in the red, yeah. Um, so yeah, they were a massive liability, and but Armin always, Armin always ended up with the publishing. He was yeah. he, he followed the old school laws that if you're a record company, you have to you should have the publishing because that's where the money is. Yeah. Um, and he made, but he allowed for those five years. There's a garage somewhere in Detroit that has all the session reels of America Eats It's Young, 
and it's floor to ceiling of two inch reels just piled up are they safe <laughs> what's going to happen to them who knows who knows? who knows but it's i'm sure they i'm sure they are safe and um no one needs to go out and look for that garage because yeah. i'm pretty certain someone knows where it is already um, it's a real this compilation is just a proper like good time compilation it's like a, a, a I, I put the whole thing if i'm like going to the gym or something i put it on and it would take care of me do you know what i mean yeah it's a real well it's uh, the label was so it it I mean, this this is Westbound's black music. They they recorded some jazz, and they also had some very odd rock groups as well. Some very odd rock groups really? as well. Yeah, what I know of any of them. Um, you might know the biggest one was a band called Mahogany Rush. Um, then they they had a couple of other. They had a guy called Jonathan Round, who produced by. Um, Mike Theodore and Dennis Coffey who right. produced Rodriguez around right. the same time and they've kind of got they're kind of a bit Rodriguez-y in its kind of folkiness apart from it seems to have the vocal of almost Tiny Tim involved. Oh my word. It's, it's a bit odd. It's not quite as extreme as that but it yeah. is a bit of an odd vocal. I, mean, I kind of want to hear it now. There's, there's also a band called Assemblage which is kind of in that classic Detroit Bob Seger um, <laughs> kind of slight almost heavy metal yeah. birth of heavy metal thing and that is a brilliant record it's got an incredible version of uh, Satisfaction on it with congas and stuff um, and I've only just discovered that because Mike Theodore sent them all to me Oh wow! and uh, he said have you guys got any plans to do anything with this so um, I'm, I'm sure we'll come up with something yeah. but yeah. He's, um, but yeah, th this comp is, um, everything's going to be all right, is a kind of straight switch through all the different vi uh, guises of, of R&B music from, uh, of the 1970s. So you've got Funkadelic, you've got, um, you've got the Detroit Emeralds, you've got, um. You've got Dennis Coffey as well, De in his solo guys. In his solo disco guys. Yeah. Even, I mean. Which is, um. Which is, I didn't realise how, just how many amazing records he'd played on, but this is a man who played guitar on, had, had played guitar on Ball of Confusion and War by Edwin Starr, Band of Gold, Frida Payne. Yes. He, uh, I mean, he was he was a busy man. Wow. And uh, I wonder if you can remember playing on all of those. There's a, there's a kind of almost self-published biography, or autobi I can't remember if it's a biography or autobiography by, of, yeah. of him, which... Goes into That'd be it quite worth a lot. having. That'd definitely be worth having. Uh, it, it? Definitely on my shelf. I don't remember it being something I'd, de I'd necessarily go back to very often. But though. you'd want the stories there. Yeah. Sort of I, somewhere. I definitely made it all the way through when and, it came um, And talking of Westbound, I mean, this is this is a this is a favorite Westbound disco, which uh, again, I, I'm just thinking about without Westbound, you know, the sort of history of the 12 inch single itself would be slightly different, partly because of their pioneering deployment of Tom Moulton. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, this comes down to Theodore and Coffey, who knew of Tom's work and and said to Armin, you should use this guy to mix your records because they'll sound better on the dance floor. So for people who don't know, Tom Moulton was originally sort of a DJ who... He was and, originally and a male model, and he looks it? like it. He looks like a kind of Burt Reynolds sort of guy. Really? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, then he was a DJ, and... He was watching things go down on Fire Island and decided these things can sound better for the dance floor and started doing these. I don't think there's been a better remixer in all of history, personally, than Tom Moulton. No, Tom's, you know, um, Tom's version of Make Me Believe in You is the one that everyone goes to. But off that same album, Disco Gold, his mix of the independence, I Love You, Yes I Do, is yeah. just one of my favourite records of all time. It's just I just think he does it because I was sort of like I, I, you know, again, similarly, like I think I think about it is for me the absolute pinnacle is his uh, his remix of Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. Don't leave me this way. Right. Yep. Which is eleven minutes long, and I sort of think, well, I'm here. Am I hearing things in that that aren't in the original, or has he just literally got all the you know? If it was done on like I don't know, sixteen track or twenty four track or whatever, has he got? Has he had access to every single 
bit of every session that was that was recorded and just reassembled it i just don't because i'm definitely hearing things or at least i think i'm hearing things that are not on the shorter version i I think you definitely are and i think he's but i think that might just be access to the 16 track and fading things up that you're not hearing but maybe not maybe he's i seem to remember reading interviews with him where he said he was just using what was on the tape it's and before that, just using what was on the record, he, yeah. you know, originally he was taping them and yeah. doing edit slices with a razor blade. Yeah, I mean, it's just stunning, you know. And you, you know, that's another an accompanying release that's worth but, uh, seeking out. You know, that's kind of again one of the things that Armin, uh, kind of his artistic decisions to just take risks and spend yeah. money was he he said he was approached said you should use this guy and for the next two years every album that came out on westbound was completely mixed by tom mm. they didn't he didn't mess around and say yeah we'll do a 12 inch here or a no. or a radio edit here he said go on and it's a decision that history has you know been very kind to because why wouldn't you want tom to have done as much as possible during that golden period yeah of his I, sort of career. exactly fantastic okay so what um i'm i'm conscious of not detaining you here too long so just before we go what um what are you you any kind of clues as to what's coming around the pipes or you must have like a dozen things just on the go just over the course of a decade i would imagine um at the moment not so much actually i mean last year or so i've been kind of throwing myself back into acid jazz for various reasons um because we've had quite a few big releases and i doing that at ace i've got a couple of ideas one of which is based around miles davis but um we'll just have to see if that comes to fruition okay uh, there, there may be issues with the miles davis estate on that they may i'm sure there will be they may not love us using his name <laughs> no okay you'll maybe you can use a anagram or something um okay uh, dean rudland uh, i thank you very much for uh, devoting an hour of your time to this uh, latest ace records podcast um i've been pete perfides and thank you also thank you i'll see <laughs> you again soon bye-bye <laughs> For more excellent music, you can scoot over to the Ace Records website, www.acerecords.co.uk, for all the wonderful music you could possibly need. <laughs>